Hi, Jack Kush here reporting from ACR 21. Another interesting poster, poster number 1100. The lead author is Mitrovic. This is a group of French investigators reporting on their collective experience with pulmonary arterial hypertension occurring in patients with adult onset Stills disease. Um, some big names in the author list here, uh, Jacques Pouchot and Bruno Fortrell, who've written a lot about Stills disease in the past. Um, they, this is a two-center collection of data. They found 13 patients with this complication of adult onset stills. Interestingly, all 13 were women. So what they did was they uh, had to meet Yamaguchi criteria for having stills disease. They had to have confirmed pulmonary artery hypertension, confirmed by right heart catheterization. All these cases had PAH diagnosed after the diagnosis of Stills disease, and about 85% of these new PAH diagnoses occurred during a Stills flare. Now, the all women are not is that important? It seems important, but I'll remind you of Bywaters, who first reported 13 patients in 1971, all female with Stills disease, and then Bujak in 73 in the Journal of Medicine reported the next uh, cohort, which was 10 all males from the NIH. So we need more numbers to know whether this is exclusively a female thing. What are the links to this? You know, could it be female? Um, they had down that um, uh, 69% of patients had received steroids. I, I'm sorry, had received an IL-1 inhibitor. 100% had received steroids. And this has been my bias when I've seen a few cases of this. Patients have been on steroids, been on IL-1 inhibitors. I always worried whether that might be a contributory cause in some small subset. And what would lead to that? I don't know. Uh, and that's not offered up in this report. Patients in their studies have been exposed to, as I said, 69% um, IL-1 inhibitors, 31% methotrexate, 15% TNF inhibitors, uh, and none had seen IL-6. Now, after the diagnosis, they all were then managed by uh, the rheumatologist and the pulmonologist, 77% going on PAH drugs, and then the rheumatologist put them on uh, IL-6 inhibitors in 38% of the cases, 13% received IL-1 inhibitors, 85% prednisone. Um, the outcomes were mainly survival, and they're not good. You know, you're not supposed to die from Stills disease. It's pretty uncommon. You're going to die usually from the therapies that we use, um, mainly steroids. Uh, but they did have a three-year survival of only 74%, and that is on par with what you'd expect with a diagnosis of PAH. So this is a scary complication of an often scary diagnosis. Um, luckily, this is a nice cohort to learn from. We'd like to learn more about how to best treat these patients. Uh, and maybe on down the line, we'll see these French investigators put together their experience with success or no success, for instance, using IL-6 inhibitors. But right now, we don't really know. Hope you're enjoying the meeting. Tune into more on Room Now. Hello, everyone. I'm Olga Petrina, and I'm here with you today to share some updates from the ACR meeting uh, of 2021. Today, I would like to highlight abstract 0195, which uh, speaks about use of JAK inhibitors in refractory adult and childhood onset Stills disease. So we know that treating Stills disease may be challenging as there are very few treatment options available that are effective 
and even less so approved. Actually, there are no approved. It's an orphan disease. So whenever we um, have a patient that doesn't respond to treatment well, um, it becomes very challenging to keep this, uh, their condition under control. And here uh, we have a report of seven cases of refractory stills disease in both adulthood and childhood where um, authors tried using JAK inhibitors in. And even though none of the patients achieved complete response in this particular study, there is some utility in use of JAK inhibitors based on this report. Apparently, um, as many as 57% uh, of the patients achieved partial response, which is some improvement in their disease activity. And uh, quite a bit of patients were able to decrease uh, steroid dose over time. So in a, in a group of the patients who were partial responders, average uh, dose decrease of the steroids was 63%. And even in the group that was a non-responder, uh, they were able to reduce steroid use by 65%. So even though we don't understand um, this disease very well in terms of treatment options, there are some uh, potential uh, possibilities here for the, for the future development. And I think it would be interesting to see a future analysis of uh, each individual JAK inhibitors and how they perform in this uh, particular condition, as well as... Uh, having more patients uh, who, who were tried in this group of medications to, to draw some more conclusions. And lastly, when it, have, uh, when it comes to safety profile, the tolerance of the medication in this particular group was quite good. Uh, there was only one case of organized pneumonia, which led to discontinuation of treatment, but the rest of the patients did well. So all in all, while it is not a good option for monotherapy for patients with cell disease, JAK inhibitors can offer some utility as an add-on treatment in terms of lowering disease activity and also uh, helping to lower the dose of the steroids over time. I hope this helpful and useful. And if you like this report, please follow us in Room Now for more updates. Hi, this is Bella Mehta reporting from New York for Room Now for the ACR 2021 conversions. In this video, I'd be talking about an interesting abstract which discusses factors associated with sustained cessation of medications for disease remission in systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis patients. SJIA, which is systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis, is a rare autoinflammatory disease which affects only 10 to 15 percent of juvenile idiopathic arthritis uh, children. It is formally called Stills disease and is considered a continuum of adult onset Stills disease. And with the advent of therapies such as IL-1, IL-6 blockade, outcomes have significantly improved even for this rare disease. High proportions of patients now achieve clinically inactive disease. And thus, the question is, of all of the patients who achieve this inactive disease, how many can actually be off medications for a period of time? In this study, abstract number 0254, investigators, investigators leveraged the data from the CARA registry, which is the Childhood Arthritis and Rheumatology Research Alliance. This is a robust registry in pediatric rheumatic diseases. It was originally started in 2002 by a bunch of pediatric rheumatologists and now collects very detailed information, not only about demographics, medications, and all outcomes in pediatric rheumatology. Here, the authors identified around 500 patients with systemic GIA within the five-year period of 2015 to 2020. 
the primary outcome of interest was medication cessation for patients who have achieved disease remission and the cessation period should be at least six months. Only 18% of the patients were able to completely wean off medications for greater than six months. And again, I think 18% is still a large number because this is a pretty severe disease. Of those patients who were able to wean off, they tried to figure out which are the important characteristics that can predict those patients who can be weaned off. So younger age, having normal CRP levels at the time of enrollment into the registry and shorter time between the diagnosis and start of medications was associated with successful discontinuation of medications for greater than six months, thus highlighting the importance of early diagnosis and early treatment um, to achieve sustained remission um, and also being able to get off medications is important here. And again, um, early treat to target strategies have been talked about uh, a lot. And now that we have medications which, which can actually do that, um, it's important that we discuss this, especially in a rare disease and a severe disease like this. Um, about 4% patients uh, developed macrophage activation syndrome, which is again a life-threatening complication, uh, often in SGIA patients. And as expected, none of these patients who developed MAS were able to get off medications. I particularly like this study because um, they have 500 patients systematically collected in a rare disease like SGIA. Also, um, it's, it shows us objective evidence towards what we traditionally thought that if you uh, diagnose accurately and early and start medications at the right time, uh, we will be able to import, uh, achieve important outcomes such as getting off medications because that's the goal eventually. You want to treat the patients, get them into remission, and then hopefully get them off medications because these are pediatric patients too. And thank you so much for listening. For more updates, follow me on Bella underscore Meta. Hello, my name is Yus. Uh, I'm from Leeds United Kingdom. Uh, I'm reporting uh, at the ACR 21 conference on behalf of uh, Room Now. It's really fascinating uh, to see that uh, now uh, we're just uh, about to go two years since the pandemic, that more uh, data uh, are available, particularly for rarer diseases such as auto-inflammatory syndrome. So uh, one abstract that uh, I am interested um, uh, today um, is uh, abstract number 1083. So this um, uh, study um, is a registry uh, study um, looking uh, at um, whether patients with auto-inflammatory uh, syndrome have a worse, worsening of flare or fever during the pandemic. Because as we know, um, a COVID infection uh, exaggerate inflammatory response um, you know, in, in people. Um, so this is one of the largest uh, study really uh, for rare disease like auto-inflammatory syndrome. Uh, most patients um, uh, had a diagnosis of uh, CAPS uh, followed by undifferentiated systemic auto-inflammatory um, disease uh, and also PFAFA. Um, so this is um, a study where the investigators uh, send um, you know, web-based surveys um, to um, the patients and also uh, their families. Uh, and uh, interestingly, during this uh, follow-up, 
um, 56% of uh, people did not, res- uh, did not report any change in disease flare compared to pre-pandemic. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, those who fled, uh, about uh, 50% uh, had uh, either low, low temperature or uh, absence of fever. So this is really uh, interesting that I found. Um, and uh, throughout their follow-up, um, there were only uh, seven, seven, so 7% uh, had COVID, and this mostly mild uh, and were treated at home. Uh, and these are probably likely be influenced by uh, patients who were shielding at the time. So um, this result is quite striking, striking because I thought, you know, people with autoinflammatory syndrome would have had worsening flare or worsening fever. So it just made me wonder after that, when I look back, I think the, the shielding um, really does protect these patients. And it probably indicates that, uh, you know, pre-pandemic flare uh, could be contributed by viral infections. So therefore, um, the take-home message, uh, you know, from this abstract um, you know, to me is I think, um, you know, once we have recovered, uh, you know, from this pandemic, I think, I think people with autoinflammatory syndrome or even, you know, uh, other inflammatory diseases uh, should be, you know, uh, encouraged to have all sorts of, uh, you know, um, vaccination to prevent from viral infections, such as your yearly, you know, flu vaccination uh, and also your COVID booster. So I thought this is, is interesting, uh, you know, in, in the forest. Um, so thank you for uh, listening. Uh, you can follow me uh, at my Twitter handle um, at, uh, at use6yusuf and you can follow more contents at Room Now.